0: We're in the process, as I shared earlier, about reviewing, praying for new elders with Jason and Johnson as candidates. We have a number of people also in the pipeline. We prayerfully ask uh, you to join us in praying for leadership development in our church as we long for our faithful uh, men to steward this role of eldership in our church. And I was hoping the timing of their affirmation would have aligned to this particular passage uh, because this is one of those crucial passages that deals with foundational truths about Ministry, it, But it's not just for elders. I was hoping it would, because I'd say if I was going to give them any message in the book of Second uh, Corinthians, it would align perfectly to this. But it really is for all of us, because we're all charged, if we're in Christ, with a kind of ministry. As part of the body of Christ, if you are in Christ, you've been called by Him. You've been converted, you've been saved by Him, and now you are empowered by His Spirit With your own ministry as a part of this church, as a part of your life, the spheres of relationships, the vocation you have, the location even where you live and have neighbors around, you have a ministry there. And so I pray that this would be helpful in helping us to steward the ministries that we all have as followers of Christ. This is also especially true, though, for those who are aspiring to roles of ministry in a local church, like Elder. This is foundational to anyone who desires to be a pastor. This is a passage that I turn to often, and it's helped me when I've been in very discouraging places. I pray that this will be a passage that helps encourage those who are aspiring to roles of leadership in the church. I pray it helps those who are aspiring to ministry of some kind, I think of David and Lorraine who are being sent out from us uh, to go on mission, to live on mission in a different place of the world, in many ways doing somewhat of the same kinds of things they're doing here. David is starting a coffee business there, and he's living on mission there with Lorraine. And I pray that this would encourage them as they're hearing this, that this would be something that grounds them as they start and would be something that they come back to in seasons of hardship or discouragement. I pray this is helpful for some of you, because I know in a city like San Francisco and in our church, there will be people who are here for sometimes very short periods of time. Sometimes people are here only for a couple years because you're here in between for grad school or a job, and then you get moved away. There's some people who will be here a short period of time. I pray this passage may be something that you come back to as you are moving to a new place and looking for another church, that you look for people in that church that Have the gospel central and leaders who embody this kind of ministry there. I pray this passage deeply shapes us as we think about what it means to make gospel transform disciples. What does that mean? How do we go about that? What does that look like? This section of 2 Corinthians gets to the gospel core, it gets to the heart of how we're supposed to go about our lives in the ministries that God has called us to. And that's the question I kind of want to ask and answer. How do we go about gospel ministry? Uh, the vision of our church. We want to make gospel-transform disciples. What does that look like? And that's very wide. There's many ways to unpack that. Second Corinthians chapter 4 helps us look at it with at least two points. There's a lot here, but I want to focus on two. The first part of how we go about gospel ministry is something that has to do with the heart. He says in verse 2, do not lose heart. It's about perseverance. Look at verse 1 with me again. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. I know this is cheesy. I've said this before, but it's sticking. And so hopefully this helps you think about the Bible when you're doing Bible study. Whenever you see a therefore, you should ask, what's it there for? Because it points you to the things that he was talking about before. And so everything that he was talking about, especially in chapter 3, but in many ways looking all the way to chapters 1 to 3, Everything he's explaining there, especially about his new covenant ministry in chapter 3. Remember, in the last few weeks, we looked at how the old covenant ministry was one of Moses. That did not bring life. It brought death. But Paul, in this new covenant ministry, has a ministry of life because it comes through the Spirit, not the law. And it's not that the law was wrong, but it it, it meant it revealed that we're broken in need of saving. And Paul has this new ministry in the Spirit that saves and transforms He was saved and transformed by this gospel. And now he's charged to bring this gospel to the end of the earth. He knows this ministry. Therefore, having this ministry, he knows all of that, everything he has in his life, his salvation, even his ministry is due, he says, to the mercy of God. It's due to mercy. It's because of grace. Paul had significant achievements in his life. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was someone who you can never challenge his zeal. But he understood as he met the living Jesus that he was dead apart from his grace, his mercy. It's because of mercy that Paul has anything in his life, not because of merit. It's because of that reality of mercy that begins his ministry that he says he does not lose heart. And Paul had So many experiences that would crush a normal person. Look what he says later in the end of this book, chapter 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Just once, right? Three times I was shipwrecked. At night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's just Monday for Paul. The Corinthians also turned against him as we looked at. Yet, he says, he does not lose heart. It's not that he's never experienced disappointment or even despair. He's expressed some disparity here in his letters, even. But it never crushes him. His heart may have been bruised, but it's never finally broken. He continues to persevere. His discouragement doesn't stay forever. He continues to be bold and courageous. Now, how can he say he doesn't lose heart? It's not because he's getting lots of pats on the back. He got attacks from the back. It's not because of his ministry success. It's not because he had thousands of people listening to him. It's not because he was a delusional romantic. Because he understood everything was by the mercy of God. It's because this news that he has is that great. Just being a part of it is enough. He anchored his hope, he anchored his identity, he anchored all of himself in this mercy. And that empowered him to say, in the midst of everything I just read in chapter 11, to not lose heart. There are a lot of jobs that people have that people go into to help people. Teachers, right? Right? Most teachers, if you ask them why you become a teacher, you want to help kids. That's usually some of the reason, right? Nurses, or a medical field. If you're in the medical field, especially nurses, they, they want to get into nursing because they want to help people. Social workers. I think every social worker I've ever asked why you become a social worker is because they want to make the world a better place. They want to help people. They want to invest in their community. They want to help people in difficult times. They want to help the vulnerable. You volunteer or you've helped with our partnership with Alpha Pregnancy Center, you do that because you want to help people. People go into those jobs, locations, they volunteer because they want to help people. (coughs) Excuse me. They do it for community. They do it for the good of others. And there's an honor in that. But if that's it, that's not enough. Dramatic pause because I need water. Thank you for muting my mic when I coughed. If you go into those fields for people, that's, there's, it's good. There's an honor. It's not, I'm not diminishing that. But all of you, who've, John, how long have you been a teacher? 14 years. 14 years. Are the kids enough? Yeah. <laughs> He's honest. Right? If we're honest, the reason you originally go into those things, if it's the people, as honorable as that is, not enough right if you go in long enough and it's only the people that you're in it for some of you become jaded some of you give up and you change careers (coughs) if people are the motivation then your your needs your ego your hopes fall on those people If you do it for students and that's your main focus and hope, then you expect them to do well, to respect you. Man, teachers really respect or get the respect of students these days, don't they? They really do. (coughs) Excuse me. If you go to nursing and you help people, how they respond to you. If that's your joy, well, then you're not going to have joy very long because most nurses these days, I was reading the news this past week about how nurses are quitting in large droves and hospitals can't hire enough. If you derive it only from the people, you're eventually going to grow cold and unmotivated because those people don't respond the way you want. You need something else to sustain it if you're going to thrive and persevere. Same with ministry. If you ever tried helping in ministry? Or maybe you're a parent and you're trying to care and minister to your kids. You remember, right, the very first time. Most of us have a memory. I remember the very first time I held my first child. It's like a vivid memory to me. And I remember praying and being excited. I'm going to, I'm going to love you with all I have. Right? You, you say those things and you pray those things and you're excited about it. And then your daughter starts talking back to you. And then you pray a different kind of prayer. <laughs> if you tried helping in ministry, youth, worship, anything, right? You go long enough, you're going to experience disappointment, frustration, even seasons of dis- deep discouragement. Because if people or pats on the back are your main motivation, you will lose heart. You will. But, Paul says because it's by the mercy of God, because the grace of God, because the good news itself is that great, he doesn't lose heart. It's amazing how glorious God's mercy is, how unending it is, how awesome it is. And if that is your main motivation, that is where you anchor yourself, there's a power to not lose heart. I just encourage you to challenge me for a moment. Uh, pastors do get discouraged. I remember one time I was arguing in, with my wife Jeanette when I was in a season of deep discouragement. We used to live in the sunset next to, next to SI. So we were, I was so mad. I wasn't really mad at her, but it came out at her. It uh, often happens in marriage. Um, and I was frustrated, mad, and discouraged. And I didn't know what to do with it. So I just got in my car. I drove. It was near the sunset, right? So I drove to church, though, because I was so frustrated at church. I sat in front of the church and just screamed in my car for a good 10 minutes. That 's how discouraged I was it that 's just some of it, but here's when I reflect back on that, and, and there's a point where I need to process discouragement. there are probably healthier ways than that at least I wasn 't doing something crazy, but like there's a moment of discouragement that every pastor has, and if I come to you and complain for close enough, and some of you I 'm very close to and I have complained to you, listen to me, I do need a listening ear, but if I sit and wallow and simmer to the point where I get close to bitterness, please ask me some questions that come from this text. I mean, pastors do get discouraged. You ask RM, he's been discouraged. It's called Monday, right? But if I'm in this unending, long slump of discouragement, what I don't need is for you to come up to me and say I'm doing a good job in a general way. I mean, I'm going to take that, right? It's going to be nice. But, like, that's actually not what we need. And if you're a good, if you're a teacher, you're in the medical field, you, you want that affirmation, but ultimately that's not enough, too. Ultimately, what I need you to ask me is what saved you? What do you get to do with your life? What do you get to do with your calling? I get to proclaim the gospel. I get to do the very thing that is the best thing in the world. Question We need to ask ourselves if we're discouraged or sitting there for long periods of time is Is the gospel the aim? Has it ceased to be the aim? You can ask it that way. Is what sustains you the people? Or is it actually the grace and mercy of God? Let me apply this to us for a second. Uh, let me speak to those who are advanced in age for a second you can define yourself if you think you're advanced or not. I'm not going to define that for you, but I think those who are advanced in age, they tend to lose heart sometimes when they look at younger generations. And I'm generalizing here. Uh, I think it, it says, people say these kinds of things in all kinds of ways, but sometimes people who are advanced look at younger people, and I'll put myself in the younger-ish category. I'm kind of, I don't know where I am anymore. I'm in the middle. Uh, but those who are advanced, you sometimes look at younger, and especially those who are like under you know, 30 nowadays, and, and you're like, well, we just put our head down and worked. What's all this complaining that you guys do? I mean, we had bad marriages too. Just tough it out. We don't talk to each other either, right? I mean, just, like, that's what the older, advanced people that look at the younger ones complaining and they're just like, they lose heart because they see, like, just, we just toughed it out. Or maybe, advanced age, the influence or roles in your life have changed and people don't look at you the same way. But remember, your life and ministry was never by the merit of your work. It is completely by the mercy of God. And so let me encourage you, by the mercy of God, do not lose heart. Younger people, let me put myself there for a second. I I think one of our great problems, and maybe this is increasingly so, I think, maybe, with those who are younger than me, I don't even know what to call my daughter's generation anymore. She was born in, 2014, no genera I don't know what the generation is anymore for that year. Alpha, they go back to A again, I don't know. But younger people, and maybe especially those who are even younger, and I see this in my daughter sometimes, and I don't really know what to do with this, but I I see this in my own heart, too. I think we could be very accurately accused of having a lot of zeal, but very little follow-through. We get very excited about things, but then we give up when things don't feel really good, or we get distracted, and we get bored, we don't stick it out. Because I think we, we've kind of started to believe the theme song of the Lego movie. Remember that? Everything is awesome. So we think everything should be awesome. So when it's not awesome, we don't persevere, we lose heart. But Paul reminds us it's by the mercy of God. And so, because of that mercy, There's a power to not lose heart when things are not awesome, when things are hard and difficult. Another reason Paul doesn't lose heart is that he knows he's not in charge of the results. Look what it says in verses 3 to 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. One of the natural questions that people would be asking Paul, because they were questioning his apostleship, was if your gospel is so good, if you're so faithful, why if you're doing everything right, why are so many people not believing what you say? And verses three to four remind us he's not in charge of the results. Satan actually is blinding people to the truth today. Think about Jesus' ministry, Paul's ministry. Not everyone who heard Jesus believed, especially even religious people, actually. They both confronted spiritually blind people. This is going to sound a little offensive to those who are not yet Christians, but this is the Bible's explanation why you don't believe yet, because there is a blindness. There's a hardness of the heart. There's a a blindness covering the eyes which you cannot see because all of us who have seen Jesus for who he really is, everything changes. The more you actually get a vision and clarity of who God is in his son, Jesus Christ, the more life changes. In fact, I say this ought to shape how Christians interact with non-Christians. They ought to make us more compassionate, less jerks, less prideful, I think sometimes Christians are more bothered by non Christians than they are broken for them. We see that God explains here that there's a blindness here. And that blindness is not our responsibility to change, actually. We can't change that. That is the Holy Spirit's work. Paul doesn't lose heart because he has this mercy of God. He also recognizes as he is faithful to proclaim the gospel. He can't change the blindness of this world. That's not his role. He's a herald. The spirit changes. And that's another reason why he doesn't lose heart. Because God actually does bring sight to the blind. He does shine light in the darkness. Look at verse 6. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God does give sight. To the blind, God does shine light in dark places. Paul has this personal experience himself, right? This veil analogy, he's intermingling a lot of analogies here. Verses three to four, he's referring to a veil, that's Moses' veil. But here in the Holy Spirit, you have this unveiled access to God's glory. He understands, he saw that. He had a first hand experience of being knocked down by light. He encountered the living God on the road to Damascus on his way to kill more Christians. And he was in darkness. He was blind to to who Jesus really was. And God revealed himself to him. It literally caused him to be knocked down, and God gave him an experience of actual blindness so he would understand where he was, and then scales removed. So Paul understood what living in the light looked like and what believing looked like. He didn't lose heart because he had a personal experience and he's seen it work out in other people's lives that God does give sight to the blind. He can bring people out of darkness into light. Paul was a recipient of that. All those who are in Christ, we have had that experience. We remember the moments of our life before we knew who Jesus really was. And we know in our experience because the Holy Spirit seals that in our heart where we saw light because we saw Jesus who he really was. We didn't just understand historical facts, although they're true. We understood who he was, and that transformed us. And we need to remember that. For ourselves, we need to remember that, that that's how God works in this world, because this kind of truth, that God does give sight to the blind, that he's the one who's in charge of bringing sight, it humbles us. When things are going really well, when there's success in our life, In ministry, especially, when things are going well in your family, when things are going well because of your Bible study or your small group, we remember, it humbles us, we don't bring sight. It was never up to us. It will also encourage us when things are really hard. Remembering the gospel does have that kind of power to bring sight to the blind. It does have power to save. Think about how he presents the gospel here. He quotes Genesis chapter 1. He says, let light shine a darkness that's literally taken out of Genesis 1. You remember what happened in the creation account. The word spoke creation out of nothing. And so the same power that created is the same power that recreates us and brings us into light that gives us sight. Think about the wattage that's being dealt with here when it comes to light. He's talking about the sun. The word that literally spoke all of the luminous spheres in all of the universe. Do you ever get to a place where there's no light pollution? There's very few places in the world nowadays, especially modern world, where you can have no light pollution. But if you get to a place with less and you can actually see how many stars are there, the same word that spoke all of those luminous, bright stars into existence He speaks life into you. He recreated you. He brought you out of darkness into light. He made you see when you could not. That's why Paul does not lose heart. That same God who spoke everything into existence is still at work today bringing sight to the blind, a blindness that can be overcome because of Christ. That's why Paul doesn't lose heart. He doesn't lose heart. That's one of the things we need to ground ourselves when it comes to gospel ministry because there is this great temptation to wallow in discouragement. There's a great temptation to be distracted. There's a great temptation to give up, to not persevere. And Paul says, Because of the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. He also anchors himself, not just in his heart, but in his actions. It's grounded in this proclamation ministry, this word ministry. Look at verses 2 again with me. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Fundamental to not losing heart is the power of the gospel. It's the grace of God. It's also the very thing that he is charged with, that's his entire ministry—to be a herald, to be a messenger of this message of Jesus. Paul doesn't—he says here in verse two—he doesn't go about this work like those in Corinth. He isn't like those super apostles we've been talking about. He's not like those famous orators in Corinth. He doesn't practice disgraceful, underhanded ways. He doesn't practice cunning. Let's unpack those in a second. But this is what he says it's all about. Verse five. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. I think it's very important that we think about this verse. Especially, I want to challenge those of us who are in leadership positions in the church. I really hope this anchors David Lorraine as they're thinking about their in of transition for ARM and his season this transition. What we proclaim is Christ. I think everyone in ministry, everyone who is in church ministry generally would say it's about Jesus. I mean, sometimes that's the motto of some of those churches. It's all about Jesus. But is it? It's very subtle in the ways that we make it not about Jesus. I think that's actually one of the great questions we have to ask ourselves if we're in prolonged seasons of discouragement. Have we made it more about me? In that season where I was sitting in front of my, in the church, just kind of in my car, I realized it was about me. And not by my words, not by my actions, but my heart, my posture, my attitude, because that prolonged frustration revealed something wrong about my heart because I had made it about me. Now, it doesn't mean that I can't have places to express frustration. It doesn't mean we can't do that. But the questions we have to ask ourselves in those seasons, I think this is one of those very pointed questions we should get to. Is it more about me? That's why John the Baptist said, less of me, right? More of him. It's very easy to say that it's about Jesus when it's all about me. Paul says he goes about his ministry, about Christ, and he kind of puts it negatively in verse 2. He's not practicing disgraceful, underhanded ways, he has no hidden motives. No hidden motives. You know, whenever you sign into new technology these days, whether it's, you know, an app or you're signing into a new device for the first time, what's one of the first things you have to get through? Usually an agreement a terms and conditions, T's and C's, which is usually like 11 pages long, which all of us just scroll down to the, no one actually, who, who sits there and reads that? If you read that, I want to hire you as our church executive pastor because we need someone who's that detailed because no one reads that thing, right? We just all scroll to the bottom, click agree, and move on. And sometimes if you ever read those things, some of those companies put in things there that are underhanded, right? All the liabilities on you. You know, if you're using TikTok, we're going to steal all your data and sell it, right? It's all those things, right? We just don't, some of us don't even care anymore. But he says there's no, uh, no underhanded, no disgraceful ways. I love, I love how Carrie was sharing that just on their website, they're very honest about what they do. They're honest in their ministry. We're not trying to bait and switch people here. Probably Paul has in mind chapter 2, verse 17, where he mentioned peddlers, people who are scamming. It's very easy. We see this all around us, where people use Jesus for personal gain. The gospel isn't for sale. It isn't proclaimed to make money. We all need to check our motives sometimes. Why am I serving in this particular place? Uh, We need to ask ourselves those questions at different seasons. And if we're in prolonged discouragement, maybe that's a very important question. I reflect back when I was a very, you know, I wasn't quite a Christian yet, or maybe a very young Christian. It's all kind of muddy in high school years, but I can be honest. One of the reasons and motivations for learning guitar in high school was girls, not Jesus. Right to play in the worship team. Right, we, what are we doing? What are we practicing underhanded ways? He says he refuses to practice cunning. That's the kind of attitude that will stop at nothing. That, you know, it doesn't matter. Just make it happen, and you're willing to do whatever it takes to have success. You know there are limits to what we will do to get people to come to Christ? People in Paul's time, speakers, they they didn't have, like, rock stars. They didn't have, like, entertainers like we have today, movie stars. They had orators. They had rhetoricians. Those people were the rock stars of their time. They could get crowds. Paul's not saying he's against Greek culture, but he doesn't automatically use their methods, especially when the methods contradict the gospel. He could have gathered crowds. He could have impressed people. He could have used gimmicks, big eloquence, but he didn't. There's one of these phrases that I learned when I was thinking and studying about ministry that's always stuck with me. It's always a, a question I ask myself in our leadership team whenever we're thinking about doing some kind of ministry. This question is what you or statement is what you win them with is what you win them to. What you win them with is what you win them to. Think about youth group. You could gather a lot of kids if you just make it about pizza games, fun, a place for girls and boys to meet each other? where that's the main concern, and Jesus is just kind of like the, the switch. You just have to, you know, listen to a sermon, and you get all that stuff. If you took away pizza, games, fun, and that was the main thing you were trying to gather youth with, that youth group would probably disperse, and you could do this with all kinds of things. It doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't mean those things by themselves are the problem, but the, the methods by themselves are not neutral. How you use them, why you use them matter. I remember sitting with this church planner once who was all about the new strategies, the new ways to communicate. I mean, the old school way, and some churches still do this, again, I'm not criticizing the methods in and of themselves, they're, but they're also not neutral, and we have to be careful about motivations. Where the old school way, right, when, when you communicate at a church, uh, was to do like uh, direct mail. So you just you know, buy out a zip code of the USPS and they'll take a, whatever kind of thing you have and just send it to all those people. Some people still do that. It's, people less and less do that because it's less effective. People just throw it away. But like now it's about social media presence, right? So I sat down with this church planner who was very you know, savvy with branding, graphics, all that. Super new, just getting started. Talk, talk, kept talking about how social media was used to reach young people. And I agree. Social media is a tool we should utilize, understand. And there's a lot of wisdom to contextualization, right? We're still using email in our church, and I realize half of you get it in spam and half of you don't read it, so no one's reading it, right? So we need to figure out better ways to communicate sometimes. But there's ways you can use means and methods that is just cunning. Now You could present a, a social media profile of a new church that, presents a kind of church that is amazing when it doesn't have anything there. You could do that. It's easy to point out the problems of other people. It's less easy to point out and see the things that are happening in our own hearts. It's not always necessarily in the flashy things. Sometimes it's actually more subtle. and It's very difficult to see that at times sometimes. Paul says, though, he doesn't practice cunning. He says he refuses to tamper with the word. That word refers to the practice of wine merchants who would dilute their wine with water. You can see the analogy here, right? He's saying we don't dilute the word of God to make a sale. People don't determine the message of the word. We don't start, when we think about the word of God in our ministry, with what people will like. Paul warns us in 2 Timothy, there will be a time... And that time has always been. It's not just now, it's back when he was also ministering, where people will gather teachers who will preach to their itching ears, just say what they want to hear. But our job as faithful people with the gospel are heralds of the good news. And some parts of that good news, we remember, parts of the good news implies that there's bad news. Some of that will be offensive. To tell people that they're lost, that they're blind, that they need salvation that their merits actually don't merit anything for eternity that they're good even though like is good in many ways doesn't last forever that's not nice to hear you know, to not temper means not avoiding hard truth in scripture you can temper with the word of God by avoiding certain topics you know one time I asked my daughter if she you know she was caught in a you know doing something wrong, and I asked her a question, and she was very crafty about it. I would say she's tampered with the truth there, because she told me the truth, but it wasn't the truth I was looking for. Very crafty that way. And we can do that sometimes in our ministries, where we avoid the, the whole truth. So we can kind of say everything about God, but avoid the one thing there. So think about what it would mean for a church like ours in a city like ours. We, we, th- we could say it's all about Jesus, and talk about Jesus' grace, love, mercy, and just completely avoid the topic of sexual identity and marriage and ethics. We never talk about that. Never say the hard truths that are hard to our culture, but actually are bring us life. We never talk about those things. We do talk about those things. We try, and it's hard. We can tamper with the truth by avoiding those things. Now, I want to say something to, especially in our church, I think we need to avoid swinging to extremes Uh, Ministry of the Word isn't like sales where the customer is always right. But it doesn't mean that people are irrelevant. I think we could go the other way where we could just get hard and say, we just got to preach the gospel, just give them the Word, and that's it. No, Paul understood how to wisely approach different people. The people didn't determine the message he was giving, He didn't tamper with the truth, but he understood when he went to different places, he approached different people, he gave them the word in ways that they could understand it. And so when he went to Jewish people, he started with Abraham because they knew who Abraham was. When he went to Athens in Acts chapter 17, he didn't start with Abraham because they have no idea who he is. He went and saw that there's a tomb to an unnamed God. And he started there with the religious practices of their time. And help them understand. Well, I can tell you who this God actually is. Paul knew how to speak to different audiences, but he didn't tamper with the word. Friends, we're all called to this kind of word ministry. We have different ways of being responsible for it. I have a particular way of being responsible for it with this platform, but that's not where it ends. All of us are charged with this word ministry. If we're in Christ, we are called to make disciples, teaching them. We we are all, in many ways, responsible for bringing that word to bear on people's hearts and lives. It's with our children, if we have children, with our church children, if we're part of this church family, we raise them together. We help them know Jesus. With our opportunities in our spheres of relationships, with coworkers, with family, with our neighbors. We all have different ways of, and responsibilities of bringing to bear that word, but we are all charged with that. Paul gives these foundations. I think they're super helpful for us as we figure out what it means in this next season of ministry together. These are things that we ought to anchor us. We anchor in the gospel. We anchor ourselves and our heart in the mercy of God because we do not lose heart. Friends, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to revive us I've been praying for revival at the beginning of this year for our church. It's amazing. I don't know if how many of you guys have been keeping up with what God through his Holy Spirit has been doing in Asbury in Kentucky. I was like, God, when I first heard that, I was like, God, you answered my prayer. It's just thousands of miles away. And that's awesome. I pray that God would revive us. And maybe one of the places we first need to experience revival is in just bringing us to a place where we stop losing heart in the conversations I have with leadership, in the conversations I have with people, the, the conversations I have with myself, and long runs that I have, I realize this is one of those places where I need revival. And maybe you do too. Don't lose heart. As things are challenging around us, when people don't listen, don't respond, we recognize we're not in charge of those particular results. We pray for God to bring sight, but We do not lose heart because we've experienced the mercy of God. We've seen it happen. God is still doing that. We do not lose heart. Some of you have children, adult children now, who have not followed Jesus for many years. And sometimes you get to family gatherings, maybe holiday times, maybe Lunar New Year, and you got together with them and you were hoping for opportunities to share Christ with your son. Or daughter but then some just this fear or this just, you know this frustration or a lack of hope settles in, and you, you don't know what to do, and maybe you become paralyzed or just give up and, and we encourage you do not lose heart. some of you in this season raising young kids, and it's it's not quite where you're having conversation with them, but you're just drowning in one hour sleep nights, and you're just trying to wrestle with your marriage and you got, you know, pressures from work, people are being laid off in your company. By the mercy of God, do not lose heart. Friends, our church is going through a lot of transitions. Right? We have huge things that I'm super excited about. We're making some important leadership changes. I think that will bless our church, make us, I think, Faithful to the, to, to the scriptures and adopt to our current you know, way of our church is and to help us do ministry better. But we also have hard things. We have transitions. I have, I'm going to lose two close friends from staff. I'm not losing them, but from staff, they're not going to be with me in the trenches day in and day out. And I'm, I'm like, I'm, I get tired thinking about that. <laughs> and I shared that. I have to preach to myself do not lose heart. Friends, let's pray and let's ask the Spirit of God to help us believe those words, to experience those words together. Holy Spirit, would you help us to know these anchors of ministry here? Paul's heart, his actions to proclaim Christ, may these be the anchor for us. Father, would you speak to those places of discouragement? Would you bring hope there would you bring grace there? Father, we ask that your spirit would show us more of how good and glorious the mercy of the cross is and how powerful the resurrection is so that we would not lose heart. And we would go about this ministry that we're all called to proclaiming Christ. I pray that as George and the Hands of Work workers are working in the midst of crisis, that they would experience this mercy of God anew, afresh, so they would not lose hearts in the midst of great trial and difficulty. God, I pray for parents here who are raising kids that are hard or adult parents parents of adult children who are praying for lost sons and daughters, that they would not lose heart. Pray, Father, as we think about the challenges of doing ministry in this city, pray as the the board and leadership at Alpha Pregnancy Center thinks about all those challenges, Father, that you would, by your spirit, empower them to not lose heart. Father, as we are wanting the Sunset District to know Jesus by our presence here and proclaiming Christ, I pray as we face challenges, as we face difficulties, as we face blindness around us at times, we would not lose heart. Father, would you do that in your work in building your kingdom? Would you revive us to that hope? In Jesus' name, in his name, is glorious. Amen.